Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. This is the second part of the story we began last week, focused on the horrific murders of Mandy Power and her mum and children in Clydeac, South Wales in 1999. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters. I'm away this week, so this is pre-recorded, but next week when I'm back I will give you a name check. Thank you so much for your support. With no need to set context this week, let's get straight into the story. We ended last week with the arrest and release of Alison Lewis, her husband Stephen and his twin brother Stuart, and we touched on the new prime suspect, 39-year-old David Morris. Let's start by hearing a bit more about him. David had, well, a challenging reputation in Clydeac. A builder, an ex-scrap metal dealer, he'd been in trouble with police numerous times and had almost two dozen convictions, the first being at the age of 14. These included a four-year jail term in 1987 for robbery and conspiracy to rob after a particularly unsavoury incident when he threw an insurance company saleswoman across a car bonnet. He also had convictions for burglary, theft and actual bodily harm. Another time after a funeral, he got involved in a nasty brawl, as you do, and on another occasion, hit a victim on the head of a piece of wood during a street fight. He'd also been banned from driving on numerous occasions, not that he took much notice of this, and he repeatedly drove whilst banned. Ion Richard, a counsellor and long-time resident in his neighbourhood, said of him, He was a man known for violence, who had a reputation for being frenzied. He was known as a weapons man, someone who would just use anything handy when he went into one of his frenzies or went berserk. He was the sort of person that you always avoided eye contact with. If you live in London, that's everybody. But he had the reputation of being someone who would resort to anything. People knew what he was capable of and kept well away. You would not want to cross him, and David, as you might expect, had spent a number of years in jail. He had three daughters with his ex-wife Wendy, but for the last eight years had been in a relationship with Mandy Jewell. The relationship was a volatile one, and the couple had been involved in a number of public fights in which Mandy was severely beaten. One neighbour told how he pleaded with him to stop after watching him hit Mandy around the head of a shovel and was told in no uncertain terms to mind his own business, and that he would be next if he did not leave him alone. Mandy Jewell was very close friends with Mandy Power, which is how Morris knew her. But the two Mandys had a terrible falling out, when Mandy Jewell discovered that Mandy Power had made up her story about suffering from cervical cancer. If you remember, that's the same lie that caused Mandy Power to briefly split up with Alison Lewis. The police were alerted to Morris as a suspect for the murders after a gold chain he owned which was found at Mandy's house after the murders. They traced his movements on the events of the night and they were certain that he must be the killer. On the day of the murder, Morris had been drinking and taking amphetamines in a nearby pub, the New Inn. He bore a strong grudge against Mandy Power. He disapproved of her friendship with his girlfriend, Mandy Jewell, and he thought she was a bad influence, encouraging her to see other men. 
As he drank that day, witnesses heard him being increasingly unpleasant about Mandy, and the strength of his feeling was evident. Morris spoke viciously about Mandy Power, calling her evil and growing more angry if anyone else tried to defend her. One fellow drinker described his anger as saying, his eyes were big and wild and manic, and he was very quiet. It was frightening, and I don't frighten easily. During the drinking session, Morris argued with his girlfriend and Mandy Jewell stormed off home. Detectives believe that after closing time, Morris had worked himself into a frenzy of anger and called around to Kelvin Road to confront Mandy Power about whether his girlfriend was being unfaithful to him. When he got there, they believed that Morris tried to have sex with Mandy Power. He was a man who usually got just what he wanted, and when she refused, high on drink and drugs, he murdered her and the rest of her family. As he attacked Mandy, the gold necklace was torn from his neck. It was later recovered, bloodstained, from the house at one of the points of the most extreme violence, and paint on the jewellery matched paint found in Morris's home. Morris denied murder. He said he last saw Mandy Power two days before she was killed, when he bumped into her in the village. He was carrying his gold neck chain. It had a broken clasp, and he was planning to get it fixed at the local jewellers. According to him, Mandy invited him back to her house to have sex, but he forgot to collect the chain when he left. This chain was soon found in Mandy's house, and after the killings, Morris told his employer and second cousin, Eric Williams, that it was his. He said he was concerned that it might be traced back to him. But Eric Williams told a friend about his conversations with Morris, and in turn this person informed the police, and Morris was arrested. He then lied to the police, denying that the chain was his. Morris denied that the chain was his until just days before his trial in 2002. Then he admitted it did belong to him. And Morris had gone to some lengths to try to fool the police. He got hold of a new identical chain and rubbed it in cement and damaged a clasp to make it look more like his old one. With this evidence, a further detailed examination of the house was carried out. But no further evidence was found to link Morris to the scene, apart from the gold chain lying in a pool of blood. One forensic scientist noted that Morris had either bathed or showered before leaving the murder scene. She found a bath at the house half full of bloody water, and there was also blood on the shower control unit. It appeared that Morris had also washed his clothes in the shower, as there was no DNA to match him to the scene on them. But this evidence was enough for police to charge David Morris with murder. In 2002, he faced the jury and explained how after the murders, the gold chain assumed a frightening significance. Explaining why he told his second cousin, Eric Williams, about it, he said, If I'd murdered her, leaving it behind is the last thing I'd have done. I wouldn't have told a soul. I told him because I trusted him and I was scared. And it was months later that that conversation led to Morris becoming a suspect. When he was first arrested, he lied to detectives. Again, he said, because he was scared. He had a criminal record. He knew that the police were under pressure and he was afraid that he would be framed for the event. On the night of the murder, Morris told the jury that he and Mandy Jewell had a row at the end of the evening in the local pub. He left alone 
and decided to walk to his parents' home, eight miles away. But it started to rain when he was halfway there. So instead, he went to the home that he and Mandy shared, getting there by 3am, an hour before the killings. Yet this gave him no alibi, as he went to bed in the spare room, and his girlfriend Mandy remained asleep. This didn't wash with the jury, they didn't believe Morris, and he was found guilty of murder, and given four life sentences. But locally, feeling was with Morris, and graffiti started to appear, proclaiming his innocence. And that was the sentiment from the women in his life, as they spoke to the independent newspaper, a week after Morris's conviction. The four ladies, ex-wife Wendy, girlfriend Mandy Jewell, and his grown-up daughters with Wendy, that's Janine and Adele, appealed for witnesses to come forward in the hope of getting him cleared. The paper reported there was no animosity between the two women, and also how Mandy Jewell had blotted out that Morris had been sleeping with her best friend, Mandy Power. Mandy Jewell decided to stand by her man after eight mostly happy years together, and just the weekend before she spoke to the newspaper, she was rushed to hospital after overdosing on beta blockers. Mandy denied that this was a suicide attempt, instead saying she'd just taken too many tablets after suffering severe panic attacks following Morris's conviction. She said, He may have gone behind my back and slept with Mandy, but that does not make him a killer. I've not even talked to David about his fling with Mandy. I'm more concerned that an innocent man is banged up in jail for a crime I'm 100% convinced he did not do. Yes, David had a temper, but he would never lift a finger to his kids. If David had done this awful thing, he'd have been found hanging from a tree a long time ago. These feelings were shared by ex-wife Wendy, who cried for the first time this week after Morris was sent to prison, saying, He loves the kids. He has a heart of gold and was always thoughtful and kind. I've known him since he was 13, and really do know him inside out. He never lifted a finger to me, and police were only called here once because of a domestic. We would row like everyone else, and once I threw his clothes on the garden and set fire to them. Once he did smash up the house after a row, but David is a very deep emotional man. He has a temper, but also a really sensitive, sensible side, which shines through. I remember my youngest daughter, Laura, was crying because she had to have plaster put on in hospital. And David was so upset, he could not watch it. Then three years later, the appeal court quashed Morris's convictions and ordered a retrial. Giving his ruling, the judge said that the argument that Morris had not received a fair trial because of a conflict of interest had succeeded. The argument was based on the fact that Morris's solicitor in the first trial, David Hutchinson, also represented Stephen Lewis, the original suspect, in the early stages of the murder investigation. Morris's new counsel, Michael Mansfield QC, said that the solicitor's connection had put the defendant at a huge disadvantage and had affected the conduct of the trial. Mansfield claimed that Morris's counsel at the trial, Peter Rout QC, may have subconsciously softened his cross-examination of Stephen Lewis. In their ruling, the appeal judges said there was a fatal flaw in the legal process leading to the convictions. They said, There were substantial allegations that were not put to Stephen Lewis, 
we have to conclude that this was influenced by Mr Hutchinson's conflict of interest. He had placed himself in an untenable situation. You've got to wonder what Hutchinson was doing, haven't you? I mean, isn't that just the basics? But Hutchinson, who described himself as a very experienced criminal lawyer, denied any conflict of interest at the hearing. And Rauch also denied any conflict of interest and said he had made all evidence available to the jury. Not strictly true, as we will hear shortly. The scenes as his conviction was quashed were very different to the roars of jubilation and shouts of anger, which had been heard from all sides of the public gallery when he was convicted three years ago. David Morris, now 42, simply mouthed the word yes as the Court of Appeal in Cardiff found in his favour. He stayed in custody ahead of the retrial. After the ruling, David Morris's sister Deborah said, We are pleased at the outcome, but this is not something that we should be going through anyway because my brother is innocent. I have never doubted him in any way. Detective Chief Constable Paul Wood said that the ruling meant that Mandy Power's family would have to face the further ordeal of another trial. And Mandy's sister, Sandra Jones, added, with every confidence in the police case and the way it was prosecuted, and that it will be presented equally as strongly the next time around. And Sandra was right. In the 2006 trial, Morris was again found guilty, and this time given a full life sentence, meaning that he will never be released. He appealed against this, but in 2007 his appeal was unsuccessful. But a growing number of people were still unhappy with this verdict, as the case didn't seem to add up. An article in the Mail on Sunday newspaper in 2014 from a number of sources posed difficult questions about the conviction of David Morris. Firstly, a key memo in the police home's computer system revealed that a police informant told detectives within hours of the crime that Mandy and her family were being threatened before the murders because of her affair with Alison. And the threats were coming from police officer Stephen Lewis. This was discovered by Brian Thornton, a lecturer on the journalism course at Winchester University. He just felt that something didn't feel right about the conviction and along with his students, he started delving into documents. As he dug more deeply, he realised that rather than just print out the various documents direct from Holmes, for no apparent reason, a police officer had copied and pasted the text of each one into Notepad, which would have taken a lot of time. As you are probably aware, there is a big difference between Holmes and Notepad, as the text of Holmes files cannot be changed once data has been entered. But as a word processing program, Notepad files can be changed with impunity. As an example, with one document, the edited version of what was known as Action 92, a logged record of an earlier message known as Message 23, said merely that there was a source of information stating that Mandy Power was being threatened. There were no further details, unlike the original, which said that on the day after the murders, Message 23 came into the murder inquiry incident room. It came from a detective who'd been contacted by a registered informant. This stated, I've just been contacted by an informant who stated that he knew Mandy Power and she was gay, and that she has been drinking in the farmer's public house in Clydak, 
The informant stated three weeks ago that he overheard a conversation Mandy was having to females who stated that she and her children had been threatened by her current lover's husband, who was a police officer. As Morris's team prepared for another appeal, the informant, a neighbour of Mandy's, was identified and made a statement saying that Mandy had told him, I've been threatened, me and my two girls. I questioned her as to the threats and she said, this person had threatened to do us in. She definitely used the phrase, do us in. I took that to mean to beat her and her daughters up. I advised her to go to the police, but she stated, I can't. And Mandy then went on to explain that she was involved in a relationship with another woman and that it was this woman's partner who had made the threats. This backs up the testimony from other witnesses who told police that Stephen Lewis had discovered the affair before Mandy's death, a claim he has always denied. He always said that the first he heard of it was after Mandy had been murdered. One of these witnesses, Mandy's neighbour, Louise Pugh, claimed at Morris's first trial that a few days before the murders, she heard Stephen Lewis shouting at Mandy outside her house saying, If you don't keep away from my wife, I'm going to kill you. Interviewed by police after his arrest, Stephen at first denied the whole incident, but later admitted telling Mandy to stay away from his wife but he said it was a joke he made because the two women were drunk and that he and Alison later had a little laugh about it. Although it's bad enough that the jury at Morris's trial never saw that Holmes document, it's incredible, isn't it, that a new version of it was created by the police which read like the original except for the references to Mandy's affair and Stephen Lewis. The obvious question is why would the police so comprehensively doctor such a key piece of evidence. The other major piece of information revealed in this article is that documents showed that scientists found DNA from an unknown man on the murder weapon, on two spent matches used to start the fires, and on the clothes worn by Mandy when she was killed. Male DNA was also found on Mandy Powers's watch, which had been a present from Alison Lewis. The killer had placed this on her wrist after she was murdered. Morris's legal team requested that this DNA should be tested with more advanced analysis to eliminate Morris or others as suspects. But this has not been done, although other items from the house which crucially didn't have male DNA on them were tested, with negative results. The significance of this is clear. With none of this DNA matching David Morris, and the fact that it exists at all was not mentioned at his trial, Why was this? And why hasn't the male DNA been tested using the latest techniques to confirm or eliminate Morris as the murderer? There are other questions about Morris's conviction. For example, the question of whether Morris was having a sexual relationship with Mandy Power. In court, the prosecution made it clear that Morris was lying and there was no sexual relationship. The trial judge at Morris's first trial even told the jury in summing up that if they thought that Morris was lying when he said that he and Mandy Power were having a relationship, this would be important in reaching their verdict. But was David Morris telling the truth after all? Mandy Power's phone records later showed that she spoke to David Morris on a number of occasions. 
This included, for example, evidence that the pair had spoken repeatedly on Valentine's Day just four months earlier. Was he in fact telling the truth and having a sexual relationship with Mandy? And let's return to the Lewis brothers, both of whom denied knowing about the relationship between Mandy and Alison until after Mandy's death. Inspector Stuart Lewis, also a member of the South Wales Police, was the first senior officer to reach the scene of the murders and, like his brother Stephen, bore a striking resemblance to a photo fit of a suspect seen in the area around the time of the killings. If you recall, Stuart was the first senior officer on the scene and investigated for his behaviour that day. Very strange behaviour. All night he was the most senior officer in the area on duty, but he said he could not remember where he was between midnight and 1.17am, when he was driving around alone in an unmarked police car, a red Peugeot. Several witnesses say they saw a vehicle matching this description in Clydac, at about the time Mandy and her family were killed. Mysteriously, it later transpired that the car log, which should have recorded Lewis's movements, had disappeared. When sometime after 4am, he was called to the scene and firefighters told him the deaths were not due to the fire. Stuart Lewis spent only a few minutes there and went off duty a short time later without informing senior colleagues this was a case of mass murder and arson. The investigation into his conduct concluded that Inspector Lewis made false statements about his actions at the scene and subsequently. I have no doubt that the entries in his statements are lies and designed to deliberately mislead. I believe that he is therefore guilty of attempting to pervert public justice contrary to common law. But fearing that the evidence wasn't strong enough to secure any conviction, Lewis was charged only with disciplinary offences. But he was not demoted, and both he and his brother continued in his role until retirement. There are plenty of other elements of the murder which don't add up. Swansea solicitor John Morris, no relation to David, has recently published a book called The Clydac Murders, A Miscarriage of Justice. He makes a compelling case, goes into all the evidence, concluding that Morris is little more than a scapegoat, an innocent man against whom justice was miscarried. He argues that no forensic evidence or DNA connected Morris to the crime. He was convicted because he lacked a solid alibi because his gold chain was found in Mandy's house, and because, as a man who'd been in trouble for minor offences, he initially lied to the police. Morris was in a relationship with Mandy Power, and that's quite simply how the chain got there, John Morris maintains. Prior to writing his book, he believed that Morris was guilty, but says, The more you look into it, nothing adds up. I'm sorry to the families of those caught up in this tragedy for bringing this case up again. All I hope to do is to shine the spotlight on an innocent man jailed for a crime he did not commit and hope others will take up the cause. But despite the rising evidence suggesting that David Morris is not guilty of the crime, in July 2018, his family were told once again that his case is unlikely to be sent for appeal. Last year, the Criminal Cases Review Commission gave his family provisional notice that his case wasn't then considered appropriate for appeal, despite years of lobbying 
by his friends and family. And they have now once again notified the family that they are not minded to refer the case to appeal. Justin Hawkins, Head of Communications for the Criminal Cases Review Commission, said, We have sent a second provisional notice explaining the reason in detail that we are not minded to refer the case to appeal and we have invited them to respond. So David Morris stays in prison. So what do you make of what we've heard today and last week? I think the conviction looks very unsafe. What do you think? In prison, David Morris has given a number of interviews which provide, I think, an interesting insight. Speaking with The Observer back in 2003, he was asked if he didn't just visit Mandy that night. He replied, visit Mandy at night, I would never have done that. It would have been far too dangerous because the kids were there, weren't they? And the kids were friends with Emma, Mandy Jewell's daughter. I would never have taken that risk. Inside his jail, David works as a cleaner, but refuses to undertake any of the offending behaviour courses which he must pass to stand any chance of future release, because this would require him to admit his guilt. This means he's also denied privileges, such as a games console and daily access to the gym. He told the Mail on Sunday in 2014, I've seen plenty of people who claim they're not guilty do those courses and get removed to a lower security category. They're on the road out. They say they're lying to get released, but I won't do that. I'll stay here for the rest of my life if that's what it takes because I will not admit to something I didn't do. Of course, if you think that David Morris is innocent... If he didn't kill Mandy Power and her family, then just who did? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. If you would like to discuss this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join 1,400 of us at our Facebook group. You'll be very, very welcome. Or to support the show and listen to the 18 bonus episodes, 19 about to come, plus other exclusive content, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. If you've got any thoughts about my 100th episode, please let me know. Until next week, when we speak again, it's goodbye from me. And remember, stay classy.